We're going to be reading from Mark 2, verses 13 through 17 this morning. Would you stand with me, please, if you're able? Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi's son, Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Patty. Please do take a seat. And I hope you will keep your Bibles open with me as we, uh, get, as we engage God's word together. Uh, again, I'm going to say it often. God's words are the best words, not mine. And so uh, anytime you feel like I'm walking out of step with it, saying something God shouldn't, I mean, sorry, God would not have me say I'm sorry, um, anything I shouldn't, that God himself wouldn't, uh, please do come talk to me. I would love to know that. Um, I, again, I'm a servant of this, and you don't need Evan's two cents this morning. And so I encourage you to keep it close to you. This, uh, our sermon in many ways is not um, just to help explain these, the, these words to you, although I hope that happens, and apply it to your own hearts as I'm applying it to my own. I want to help teach you how to read God's word on your own. I've been reminded recently in this time, we have a lot of voices clamoring for our attention, don't we? A lot of voices, some of them, well, I should say most of them are very hostile, want you to pick a side. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. You know what? One voice you need more than anyone? You need God's. And God cares so much about you to speak to you daily from his word. The most important thing, without exaggeration, that you can do if you want to grow close to God himself, if you want to come to understand him, if you want to have relief from your anxiety and to hear his voice most clearly is to read the Bible. I recognize it doesn't come as naturally to some of us, and that's why I'm here. I want to help you in reading God's word. I'd encourage you to spend five minutes a day. Find somebody who else who can hold you accountable to that, who you can study with, who can help you ask good questions. But I encourage you to make it a habit to read five minutes a day in, in, your, in your Bible and, if, and to increase that maybe next month to 10 minutes, then to 15 minutes. And I encourage you also to make it a rhythm to read through the entire Bible rather than just your favorite passages. We want to hear from everything God speaks, um, God says, and that includes, yes, Leviticus and Numbers. And so, again, our church is here to help you do so, but you need God's word more than ever. And so we're going to go to God's word this morning. That was for free. Let's get into our passage. Um, I uh, want to say, again, a special thank you to those who are, again, logging in online. Um, we can't wait for you to be back in person with us. And please know that we, even as we're praying for you, and we are for you to stay encouraged and safe during this time, our church wants to know and meet your needs. So we recognize many of you are experiencing extra isolation during these days and maybe navigating relational tensions. It just makes wedges drive deeper. 
um, or it's sim simply you just need a, us to bring you a dozen eggs, we would love to serve you. Our deacons would love to serve you. Please do reach out to us directly. Before we get into our passage, I, I have just one more thing I want to point out. I, I have to tell you, as a, as a pastor, I, I love talking about the work that I do most of the time. I, I really do. It gets, some, it gets some weird looks from people. My relatives think I'm wasting my life, uh, some of them. They've told me, I told my parents that very openly. But nonetheless, like, I do love being a pastor, but I particularly love inviting people to our church, especially during the season where I see God doing so much among you. God is really at work in our church, and, uh, and I love inviting people into that. But you know, I'm, I don't know how many times I've received the response, and maybe you have too, you know, I'm, I'm not really a church person. I think many of us can relate. I recognize many here don't particularly consider themselves to be church people. Maybe you're not quite sure what to think about all of this, about someone like me, you just showed up because maybe you're trying to get your life back in order or because someone won't stop badgering you until you come with them. Somebody drug you in here, kicking and screaming. You may not even be sure why you're here in the first place, but you're pretty sure you're not a church person. If that's you, I want you to know just how grateful I am and honestly impressed that you would come to a place like this to show up with all of those hesitations. It is a big deal, and I think you'll find that this is a safer place for your questions and your baggage than you think. But still, I want to ask, just who is a church person anyways? Is it someone who knows their Bible really well? Is it that somebody who is familiar in a space like this, has their life in order? Is a church person someone who maybe dresses a certain way, talks a certain way, avoid certain TV shows, praise like Shakespeare, and says a lot of, oh, bless their hearts. What other images come to mind? Maybe I can put it differently. Who is not a church person? Are there people who are automatically disqualified, people with a certain history, a certain sexual past, maybe? Maybe a certain legal record? I think God's answer might surprise us. And I think we're going to see that in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, and verses 14 through 17. And I want to look at these verses in three parts, if we could. I want to look at Jesus' call, Jesus' conflict, and Jesus' claims. Now, before I go on, Grace was making fun of me. She wonders, how, oft, how long does it take you to come up with something that, that's, uh, that rhymes or has alliteration? I don't know. Maybe it's just a Baptist pastor, but it's like, it's like I'm not satisfied with my outline unless it's got like three Cs. But nonetheless, let's keep going. Jesus' call. Now, whether you have been with us for the last few weeks or not, I need to make some clarifying comments about what are we looking at when we're looking at a book called uh, The Gospel According to Mark, or many, way, many of us know it just as Mark. Well, it might surprise us, but this is not a book actually about Mark or John Mark, who the, who's the writer, and that confuses many of us. Wait, his name is John Mark, don't we have a Gospel John? This is a different John, John Mark, whose nickname was Mark who wrote this book, but Mark isn't about Mark any more than Matthew and Luke and John are about their authors. Each of those four books, which we call the Gospels, are summarizing Jesus' life. They're all about Jesus, but they're different than a biography. They're different than any other biography you might read. They don't aim at just giving us history. They are history with a point. The history they're giving us about Jesus is to prove something about Jesus. They're not merely trying to inform us or impress us, 
They're, they're aiming to move us to confess loyalty to Jesus alone as Savior and Lord. They're looking to prove something about Jesus, and particularly in our passage, looking to prove something about the kind of grace that Jesus offers. So if you would, we're going to look at verses 13 and 14 first. This passage picks up with Jesus moving to the outskirts of town. He's going to, uh, it tells us he's on the, uh, the, the shore of the sea. It might seem random to us, but this is a pattern of Jesus in Mark. Every time it seems that he has a major victory where people are super impressed with him, where he seems to gain an even more massive crowd, he leaves them behind and goes to the wilderness, to the outskirts, as if he is, and this I think is one of Jesus' intents, there's many intents in doing this, but as if he is renewing his vows to God and not to the crowds. And he's renewing his allegiance to his father's will and not to popular opinion. It's only a matter of time, though, before the crowds find him there as, and, and he teaches them on the shore of that sea until he decides once again to go back into the city of Capernaum. But then verse 14, it interrupts. It zooms way in on Jesus along the road back into the city where he encounters a man named Levi. And it tells us about their conversation. Would you read verse 14 with me? And as he, speaking of Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I have to tell you, tell you I've already mentioned this in our Bayless Kids moment. It may not immediately stand out to us, but this is really, really strange. In fact, I imagine that the disciples at this moment start elbowing one another. They, they are slowed down. They perhaps miss Jesus behind them. They, they see him, that he's stopped, and they, and they start wondering, wait a second, is he talking to who I think he's talking to? Wait, did he just say what I think he said? Is Jesus asking a tax collector, a tax collector, to be one of us? Why, would they, why do I think that they would have expressed such disgust? Because Levi sometimes called Matthew, and we have a gospel that was written by him, doesn't just have an ordinary job. As a tax collector, in this day and age, he was, excuse me for being frank, a scumbag. He was a customs agent, a toll man for Herod, catching and charging travelers on their way from city to city, usually for the goods that they were carrying into the city. Seems harmless enough, we're used to these kind of taxations ever happening every time you swipe a credit card or you buy something at the dollar store. You've got taxes that are added on. But this was a really scummy job to have in these days for at least two reasons. First, no one liked to pay money to the government. I know that's different than our day and age, but they didn't like that. Especially in the first century when taxes went to fund an enemy empire. They went to fund an oppressor, an occupier, a ruthlessly oppressive regime. A kind of empire who strung up your loved ones on a Roman cross just to prove a point and to keep you under their thumb. Those who collected taxes for that government, especially when it was their fellow Jews... They were considered traitors. They were considered sellouts. They, were, they, they had a special kind of hatred. Second, tax collectors were notoriously corrupt. 
in a day where tax rates were changing frequently, it would have been fairly simple for the tax collector to add a little or a lot to the going rate. It's how they made their money, as they would add on to the going tax rate. That's how, they would, uh, that's how their occupation worked, pocketing the extra for themselves. In fact, in Luke chapter 19, another gospel, we hear about another tax collector. We hear about a lot of tax collectors, actually, in, in, these, in the stories about Jesus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he? Okay, chief tax collector who had grown quite rich from this practice. He was one of the wealthiest men in town because he had squeezed taxes more than he should have out of his fellows, and he was loathed. It would, wouldn't be beyond imagination for an employer like Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, to look at someone like Levi and to turn the other way if he did the same. But not only that, it perhaps would encourage him to skim off the top. It was a, it was a career field that attracted the dishonest and the greedy. First century Jews, they, just, they didn't just hate the tax booth. They hated the one who sat there even more. Tax collectors became the, the butt of jokes, the symbol for all that is despicable in the world. The, the social pariahs, they were no better than the town prostitute or village drunk. Some religious leaders, they spoke of tax collectors as being on the same level as murderers and robbers. They weren't allowed to worship with the rest of Israel in the synagogue. They couldn't serve in court because their, their uh, testimony was, proved, was, was thought to be untrustworthy. Everything that they touched was unclean. In fact, it was recommended that you not even accept the generosity of a tax collector because it was dirty money. Even the religious leaders said it was better to lie to a tax collector than to participate in their treason. It's no wonder that tax collectors, being, on such, uh, being the outcasts in society, they, they formed their own community. Their friend group was other tax collectors. They, they only connected, only spent time with those who were on the margins like them. They were the definition of outcast. They were dangerous influences. They were seen as beyond help. And yet Jesus is having a conversation with one. It might make sense to the disciples if there was some sort of rebuke involved, some sort of fiery call to repentance. Maybe if Jesus just had uh, thrown out a sarcastic joke or two that they could snicker uh, about after they passed him by. Instead, Jesus says just two words to Levi, follow me. He calls Levi a tax collector who was a disgrace to his own family to follow Jesus as a disciple. And I imagine that Levi was even more shocked than anyone um, that w at what he was being asked. Every other interaction he had with his Jewish fellows was cold. It was disdainful, disrespectful, often angry. It's as if you uh, merged, um, and now no offense if you work for the IRS or, tele or a telemarketer, but if you merge those two occupations... What, that's what it would be like to be, that's what the treatment that that would receive is what a tax collector would receive. Every interaction would be one that was fraught with tension and anger. He probably had been watching Jesus for some time. He may have even known his disciples, especially the fishermen. Why? Because he had taxed those fishermen on a regular basis for their fish. And yet Jesus is asking Levi to come with him. 
And he did. Leaving everything behind, this tax collector rose and followed Jesus. Let me ask you, would you consider Levi a tax collector, a church person? Jesus evidently does, and it ticked people off. This leads to our second point, Jesus' conflict. Can you picture it? Levi has never been treated this way. And he comes out to Jesus, and he decides, overwhelmed by this show of compassion, and that that Jesus would, would... risk for someone like him, that he decides to throw him a barbecue, okay? So he brings Jesus over to his house and invites all of his friends over, a whole heap of what you might, what we might call bad influences, other tax collectors, and what this passage calls sinners. That's how they were referred to by the rest of the Jewish population. And they, he wanted them to meet the one who had called him, of all people, to follow. And Jesus has the audacity to accept the invite, to go over and to eat, This may not be immediately apparent to us, but this was even more outrageous than his first conversation. To eat with someone in this day was to identify with them. It was, in a sense, to call them your people. Now, it's easy for us to, at this point, um, well, yeah, religious leaders, especially the Pharisees and scribes, they, they wouldn't do something like this. This is why Jesus, as a teacher who cares about God, is so confusing to them, because They drew boundaries around who they would eat with. Very few could eat, in fact, eat with them, especially not sinners. And hearing that, I realize many of us would shake our head at the Pharisees. It's easy to to look down on someone like that. I mean, who can stand a holier-than-thou hypocrite? For many of us, this is why many of us don't have any time for religion or for religious people. We we would say that religion only leads to arrogance. It leads to legalism. It, It often leads to injustice. And who can stand a person like that? But I think many of us are legalists without realizing it. Even among, even many who would consider themselves secular people. Many non-religious people, I think, can be legalists as well. In fact, I want to give three signs of legalism, I think, that we see here. First, legalism defines the sinner. Now, I need to be really careful of here, uh, here. Some of us, we really love an idea of Christianity that is soft on sin, uh, that says all we need is love, that defines love as refusing to pass judgment on others. That It's, it's important to say that The Bible isn't soft on our brokenness or on our sin that has caused it. And neither is Jesus. Jesus is the same one who told the crowds it was better to have a millstone tied around our neck and be drowned in the sea than to cause someone to sin. The problem with legalism is not that it defines sin and brokenness. It's not that it points it out. It's that it defines the sinner And it defines the sinner in a way that doesn't include ourselves. I want us to think about how good our culture has become at blacklisting the sinner today. We may not call them the sinner. We have other terms, but the polarizations that at least I see right now, maybe I'm the only one who sees it on Facebook and on Twitter. But we, many have called this the, uh, called it my sideism, my sideism, and it's exactly what you would expect. What they mean is that there's not only increasing pressure to pick a side on a variety of issues, but to declare that side publicly. 
and then to determine who is on my side and then to demonize those who are on the opposite side until it becomes less about a pursuit of justice and truth than seeing my side win and the other side fall flat on its face. Instead of giving others the same benefit of the doubt that I hope they would give to me, instead of asking if I have heard or represented the other side correctly, instead of going back to the scriptures and wondering if I might in fact be wrong, we place ourselves in echo chambers, which means we surround ourselves with opinions that bounce back what we already assume anyways, and then we cancel out those who disagree. This is many people have called our culture also a cancel culture that may not call someone the sinner, but make mo- mo- no mistake, it, it doesn't take a religious person to demonstrate this kind of cold disdain and disgust toward others. We see this on both sides of the political spectrum, and unfortunately, often in the church as well. I know many pastors who enter the pulpit these days with a sense of fear every week aware that anything they say is going to get them auto-sorted into a category, give other permissions to dismiss what they say as the ramblings of a Trump-worshipping conservative, or a virtue-signaling liberal, or a people-pleasing moderate. Pastors trying to uphold and apply God's word, which corrects both Republicans and Democrats, men and women, rich and poor, people with any shade of skin, aware that These pastors are aware that they may be one more casualty of our cancel culture. And I recognize many are wondering in the seats as they listen to a pastor like me preach, how does he vote? And if I can figure it out, should I take him seriously anymore? I would be lying if I don't feel this pressure myself and that fear perhaps ties my tongue more than it should. Again, the sin of legalism is not that it identifies sin as it is, Christians can and must indeed speak in times like this and at other times against things like white supremacy and racism and all forms of partiality, just as they must call out the injustice of abortion or the brokenness of our sexual ethics. The sin of legalism is not that it defines sin, it's that it defines the sinner in a way that does not include myself. Second, legalism distances the sinner. We'll look at this more next week, but the traditions that kept the Pharisees waiting outside instead of partying with the people in the house, these traditions were at at least at some point a byproduct of love. It's easy for us to, again, demonize the Pharisees without realizing it, but the Pharisees were aware of what happens when God's ways are disregarded. They knew their national history. They knew that their nation was still limping because of a deportation and a mass exile into Babylon that they're, they're, they were robbed from their homes. People were slaughtered um, in this conquest because they understood that was the consequence of them abandoning God and giving up on his word. They were determined never to let that happen again once they came back. And this godly fear led them to construct an even more restrictive fence around God's law so they wouldn't even get close to breaking it. They wanted to stay as far away from it as they could. And so these rules... But these rules, they proved to be enormously difficult for the average person to follow. And so most people who were known as the Amharets, the people of the land at the time, were simply too poor, too busy, and too desperate to give these rules, these extra rules, much thought. 
let alone to give themselves to daily study of the Torah to the amount that these religious leaders were able to. They couldn't bear the burden that was being given to them. And so a deep division grew between these leaders and the common person as the common person says, well, if that's what it looks like to be close to God, I ain't coming close. Instead of revisiting these traditions, examining the heart of God's law and asking how they might help the average Joe and Jane to follow it, the Pharisees grew increasingly cold toward them. After all, they knew the standards, and if those people couldn't be bothered enough to care, the best they could do is maintain their distance. They certainly couldn't eat with them. Not only would that compromise their own integrity, wouldn't that condone their lifestyle? This is why the scribes stood cross-armed outside of the party. To use Obi-Wan's words in Star Wars, which we've been watching a lot of with our kids, I'm sorry, Jesus had entered a wretched hive of scum and villainy. A place where no God-fearing man would go. And so they ask his disciples, what in the world is your teacher doing? There's an accusation actually at the disciples here. Did you hear it? You're following a man like that? (laughs) Good on you. It's ironic. The boundaries the Pharisees set up to protect God's people now isolated them from these very people. The traditions they built to honor God were now keeping them from the ones who needed him the most. It's interesting. Over the past few years, I have worked as a consultant for churches that are in decline. And one of the reasons, actually, that we came to Bayless two years ago was because of this. We, we, but do you want to know one of the most consistent features of dying churches? They blame their neighbors for their decline. And they equate tradition with obedience. Usually, core leaders will say something like this in these meetings. I, I remember when our neighborhood was fill-in-the-blank safe, um, connected, and at least until they moved in. Our doors are open. It's not our fault that they don't come. These leaders often say, sure, we would be willing to adjust, you know, as, so long as I mean, you don't take our hymnals away or wear skinny jeans or let people smoke. I don't understand why they don't connect here. I I think we're pretty loving. And last, it's not our fault they can't handle this about us. It's just the way we are. Again, secular people do this as well. It doesn't just take a religious person to be a legalist. If we can just label someone, it gives us permission to keep them at a distance. Marxist, racist, woke, nationalist, social justice warrior, or maybe other terms, Muslim, illegal, felon, addict. The legalist finds comfort in distancing themselves from the sinner. It's not that they hate them. They just feel comfortable keeping them at arm's length. It's easier to criticize someone you don't know and to find yourself, to justify yourself in doing so. Let me say that again. It is easier to criticize someone you do not know and then to find ways to justify yourself in doing so. The legalist may say, of course, anyone is welcome, but then it's highly assumed that you will learn to speak, act, pray, and behave a certain way if you want to avoid the shifty eyes 
and the whispers and the blesser hearts. You're free to belong, of course, so long as you get your act together. A legalist may say they love the sinner, but when push comes to shove, they don't pursue the sinner. Why? Because pursuing the sinner would threaten my put-together world. It would threaten my life as I know it. Others might think I'm condoning them. The legalist doesn't just distance from the sinner. It then justifies that distance, which leads to the third thing that legalism does. It's sign legalism demonizes the sinner. I've already spoken to this a little bit, but I want to press a bit further. You see, the most dangerous part about legalism is not that it defines or that it even distances from the sinner. There's a deeper reason, in fact, that we distance and define because legalism helps to justify ourselves. It helps to boost our self-esteem. It helps us feel closer to God. This is the essence of self-righteousness, looking to be acceptable to God, not because of the work of Jesus on the cross, but because of how I stack up when I'm compared to others. It reminds me of the words of the Pharisee in Luke 18, again referring to a tax collector who said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Without realizing it, all of us are coping with an internal sense of inadequacy that we are not enough. And one of the most common ways to convince ourselves that we are enough is to size ourselves up based on who's around, to see how I compare, to demonize others in order to puff up my own pride. If I can make someone out to be a worse sinner than me, that means I must be closer to God than them. I may not be perfect, but God is much more likely to accept me than them, of course. I mean, grace, of course, is unmerited, but it, takes, it, it makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it, in my case? These are this, how a legalist, and I, trust me, I feel like it's convicting to me to even say these things. This is how we comfort and coach ourselves. A God who loves sinners, though, a God who loves tax collectors, it throws the legalist off their balance that kind of God threatens everything that we have worked so hard to prove. It threatens what I have found my security in, what, helps, what helped me to sleep at night. Grace doesn't actually feel that amazing to the legalist. Grace is a threat. But this leads to the most important part of our passage, Jesus' claim. I want to read verse 17 once more if I can. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now before we look at what Jesus is saying, friends, I want to point out something really remarkable about Jesus. I don't know about you, but if it was me, I would have probably ignored what the scribes said and just badmouthed them later when I was around safe people. But notice Jesus here. What does he do? He engages the legalists. He seeks to win them over. He doesn't just want to win an argument. He wants to see the legalists win as well. He engages the legalists because he loves the legalists. 
Anyone other than me find this comforting? Anyone other than me who has spent their life comparing themselves to others and keeping others at a distance? Anyone other than me find this enormously reassuring that Jesus pursues the legalists, that he wants more for them? And if he hadn't done so, I would still be stuck in my own self-righteousness. But still, I want to look at this illustration that Jesus uses, which so far as we know, shut the scribes up. It's interesting. Some of us, again, find it easy to make fun of legalistic types, to rejoice at the image of Jesus going to the party. I always say to ourselves, see, that's somebody who gets it. Let, pe- let's, let people live and let live. Let, accepts people and celebrates what gets those religious jerks all bent out of shape. He gets it, after all. Who are we to judge? But friends, this misunderstands Jesus at a fundamental level. After all, notice how Jesus refers to Levi and his friends, perhaps as they're still standing around. He calls them the sick. He calls them even the sinners. But he does so differently than the legalists. He does so differently without an ounce of self-righteousness or iciness in his voice. But he still, nonetheless, does call them sinners. We don't need a savior. We don't need a a king, a rescuer that simply ignores, relabels, or perhaps even celebrates what religious people have called sin. Instead, we need a savior who is honest with us, who shows us in no uncertain terms that we are far worse off than we ever have dared to admit. And there is nothing we can do to get ourselves out of this mess. I think This is one of the reasons why Jesus spent so much time with the sinners. Why he gained a reputation for gathering with the most wicked and notorious people. Because these people were the most likely to own up to their condition. They knew they were hard to love. They knew they couldn't get their act together. They may have even seen themselves as broken beyond repair. Yet notice what Jesus models here. Unlike the Pharisees, Jesus moves toward the sinner. He takes the initiative. In fact, even though Levi is the one whose house they are in, the passage presents not Levi, but Jesus as the host of the feast. Jesus moves toward the sinner. Do we do the same? Let me ask you, friends, and I'm saying this first and foremost to myself. Grace and I last night spent a great deal of time in prayer wondering if we do this. What are your routines like? If someone was to look at how you spend your time, would they say your week looked more like the Pharisees or like Jesus? Do you distance yourself from those who disagree with your opinions and lifestyle? Or do you take the initiative to pursue them? Who shares your dinner dinner table? What comforts have you been forced to lay aside lately to love the sinner? Who are you going out of your way to to serve and explain the gospel to? Are you willing to do so even if others might make the wrong assumptions about what you're doing? Speaking of evangelical churches like ours today and like the one that he pastored, Tim Keller points out, We tend to draw conservative, buttoned-down, moralistic people, the licentious and liberated, 
or the broken and marginal avoid the church? That can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. Don't you want a church that draws those that Jesus did? It's messy. But in that kind of church are signs of life, a declaration to the watching world that the gospel really is the power to save. The gospel is not a, it's not a, it's not telling you to just clean yourself on your own terms. It's not saying size yourself up to others, that the gospel really is grace for the sinner, grace and grace alone, hope to those who are dead. Let me remind you, friend, Jesus restores the reject by becoming the reject. Perhaps the reason we define, distance, and demonize, perhaps the reason we don't, like Jesus, pursue the sinner is because we have forgotten that gospel. Again, Jesus restores the reject by becoming the reject. He heals the sick by taking their sickness. He redeems the sinner by bearing their sin. On the cross, Jesus became a curse for us, which is good news for those who recognize they deserve one. The cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ tell us that there is hope for those who can't seem to get their act together. Maybe that's you. And if that is you, if you will just confess your brokenness and your sin and your inability to fix yourself on your own terms, if you will then rest upon God's grace for forgiveness, Jesus unbelievably calls you into his kingdom. True faith says in response to Jesus' words to the sinner and the sick, that's me, I'm one of those. This is what it means to be a church person. Forgive me for being a bit frank, but I really don't care how long you've been in the church, how put together your life is, how much you give to our church, whether or not you consider yourself a Baptist. I don't care if you cannot confess that you are among the sick that were in need of rescue, that you are one of the sinners that cannot fix themselves. There is rescue, friends, but only for those who will admit that they need it. This is what the Pharisees missed. Only those who see themselves as the sinner can hear the Redeemer's call. And so hear me as one beggar pointing other beggars to the bread because that is what we are, friends. Hear from me. Aren't you tired of pretending that you are better than you are? Are you sick of working yourself to death, hoping it's enough to make God happy? Are you exhausted from the need to consistently size yourself up and wonder if it's enough? Jesus comes to heal the sick, call the sinners. Whether you are a rebel or a rule follower, we're not so different. Would you come to Christ? You and me, we're, we're not so different from one another. And if you have come to Jesus, if you're one who confesses Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you're a Christian, let me ask you, who needs to hear this news from you next? Will you go out of your way to pursue those who might read between the long lines in the wrong way? 
What lengths will you go this week to chase them down? Would you join with me in prayer? What power do we have to go chase after those who um, are unlike us? Lord, the, those who make us uncomfortable and afraid. Those who we have trouble not looking down our nose at. Those who we've been hurt by. Those who we, even when we're afraid of how others will perceive our action. Lord, um, what power do we have for these things? Only Christ. To see him as the friend of tax collectors who does not just shove sin under the carpet. He doesn't relabel it. He doesn't just say, let bygones be bygones, but he owns it, brings it into the light that we might, having ourselves brought into the light, say that he is our only hope, that we are worse off than we've ever dared admit. The rabbit hole goes even deeper. And yet because of Christ and what he's accomplished through his cross and resurrection, we are more loved than we ever dared hope. Would we say with Jesus' words, yes, that's me, I'm one of those. Would you call many of us who are legalists, who tend to define, distance, and demonize to pursue because we have been pursued? And were some of us who wonder if we're church people find belonging here among those who are eager to make much of Christ, to walk in obedience to him, but recognize that they can't do it apart from grace and grace alone. It's because of that majestic grace that has come through Jesus and because of his matchless name, which we want to honor, we pray. Amen.